This morning we will especially concentrate on the verses 6 and 7 of Luke 2. That's the text for this morning. Let's read that once again. While they were there, the time for the baby to the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 22, the stanzas 1 and 2. Bluff congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, also you boys and girls, the physical details of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ are well known to us. Just about everybody knows them. That's because the Christmas story is told so often and in so many ways, in Christmas carols and Christmas cards, nativity scenes and on the radio and other media. But do they have it right? Are the songs that are often associated with Christmas, are they all right in their details? Is what is told in them exactly what happened? For they want you to think that the uniqueness of the birth of Christ lies in the way that he was received by mankind at that time. And they appeal to your emotions. It was because of his austere physical surroundings that he was so special. He was so poor. The people didn't want him. No one cared enough to give his parents a decent him and his parents a decent roof over his head. The somewhat apocryphal story goes that his father and mother, Mary and Joseph, arrived in Bethlehem the night before his birth. And then when they came there, there was no room for them anywhere. No one cared about the fact that she was nine months pregnant and about to give birth. There was not a soul in the whole town of Bethlehem who would give them a roof over their head. The only place where they could find some accommodation was in a local inn. But that local inn didn't even have room for them either. And so they were directed to bed down amongst the animals in the stable of the inn. And when the Lord Jesus was born, they only had a manger to lay him in. Poor baby, poor parents. But is that really how it happened? Were the people in Bethlehem such a heartless bunch that they did not have any room for a woman about to give birth? What really did happen when Christ was born? What were really the physical circumstances around his birth? Well, brothers and sisters, we as Reformed believers always want to let the Bible tell the true story. And as you will see, things did not happen exactly the way that you think. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was actually a very ordinary birth occurring under ordinary circumstances. Yet at the same time, it was also a miraculous birth but not because of the physical circumstances of his birth, but because he is the unique son of God. I will preach to you about the ordinary yet miraculous birth of Christ. And we will first look at the normality of his birth, 
and the second place, the magnitude of his birth. Is it really true that Joseph and Mary came into a town just as she was about to give birth to her firstborn son? Well, that's very unlikely. In the first place, Bethlehem is at least 100 kilometers from Nazareth. Do you really think that Joseph and Mary would have traveled that distance just as she was about to give birth? It's not as if they could step in a car or a bus or a train in order to make that journey. They didn't even have bikes in those days. No, the only way they could travel was on foot or by donkey. It would be highly irresponsible for a pregnant woman to make such a trip under such circumstances. It would be much more reasonable to assume that Joseph and Mary made their trip at least several weeks in advance. The text in Luke also supports such an interpretation. For what does the text say? Take a close look. It says that while they were there, that is, in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. In other words, they were already there when the baby was born, when it came, when the time came for her to be born. Joseph was a responsible man. It is not reasonable to assume that he would have gone to Bethlehem without making some plans for his stay there beforehand. After all, Bethlehem was the place of his ancestors. And so Joseph would have had a few relatives where he could stay. And if not with relatives, then with a stranger. For we also know that in accordance with Middle Eastern hospitality, strangers would not be left stranded. Mary and Joseph would have been invited to stay with someone in town, especially considering that she was in the last stages of pregnancy. And so it is much more reasonable to assume that Joseph would have stayed at a relative's place or in the home of some other family in town. But you may say the text says that there was no room for them in the inn. Isn't that where they stayed? And does that not also suggest a last-minute arrival? Isn't that what we would do or what would happen to us when we came late into town someplace? It's not always possible to find room in a local hotel. However, the word that Luke uses here and that is translated as inn is not the usual word for a commercial inn. Elsewhere, that same word is translated as guest house. That was done, for example, in Luke 22, verse 11. In that passage, the Lord Jesus instructs his disciples to prepare for the Passover. And then he instructs them as follows. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Kataluma is the Greek word. Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. It's the same word that is used here in Luke 2. The word that is normally used for a commercial inn is found in Luke 10, verse 34, where we read the story about the Good Samaritan. It says there, 
Then the good Samaritan put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. A totally different word is used here. A word which clearly refers to a commercial inn. So what's the text telling us? Well, in order to understand that, we have to, first of all, understand the cultural background of Luke 2 and also the kinds of houses that they lived in in those days. Houses were built differently than today. Homes in Israel were often built with an extra guest room attached. That guest room would be at the end of the house. But there would be also a stable at the other end. In between, there would be a large single room which served as the living quarters. The bedrooms of the family would be at the back of the house. Now, that would appear that the guest room of the home in which they were staying was already taken up by someone else. For such a room was reserved for a recently married son and his wife or for visiting relatives. It is likely that some of the relatives arrived before Mary and Joseph and that for that reason there was no room for them in the guest room. And so most likely Mary and Joseph were given the living quarters to sleep in. This scenario is also supported by what we read in Matthew 2, verse 11, namely that the Magi found Mary and her child in a house in Bethlehem. No doubt that would have been the house that the Lord Jesus was born in. But then you say, well, what about the manger? Well, that's easily explained. For, as I said, the stable would be at the other end of the house. But those living room quarters in which Joseph and Mary were staying would be open to the stable. The floor of the living room would be about four feet above the level of the stable. And mangers were built into the floor at the end of the living room. So you had the animals down below. And those mangers would be below the living quarters, would be at the right height for a standing cow or donkey to feed in. And so one of those built-in mangers at the end of the living quarters could very well serve as the first bed for the Lord Jesus. The question is, what does it really matter? What difference does it make? Is it really so important that we know where he was born and under what circumstances? In a certain way, it does. For this does alter the traditional Christmas story somewhat, Christmas story that has been built up over the years. As a result, we would have to change the pictures on the Christmas cards, our nativity scenes, and our stories. We would also have to change our thinking a little bit about the whole story. For from now on, the story would have to be told that Mary and Joseph did not come into Bethlehem the night before his birth, but that he came, that they came several weeks earlier. And they did not find accommodation in the stable of a local inn, but in the home of a relative of someone else in town. 
When the baby Jesus was born, he was born in a normal house and was placed in a manger in the family living quarters right next to the stable. The only reason that they were not able to use the guest room was because there was no room for them there, for it was already being used. How does that now affect our thinking about the birth of the Lord Jesus? Well, brothers and sisters, this shows that the Lord Jesus was born in a very ordinary way. He was born in an ordinary house, on an ordinary street, in an ordinary Jewish village. It was not so either that all of Bethlehem rejected him at that time. No, he was extended normal hospitality. From a human point of view, there was nothing unusual about his birth. And so those ordinary circumstances help us to identify better with him. He was just an ordinary human being, just like you and I. He was born like thousands of babies before him and like thousands of babies after him. From a human point of view, there was nothing extraordinary about his birth. He is one of us. And so this altered story emphasizes his true humanity. He is like us in every respect, sin accepted. The story of his birth, however, also show the extraordinary circumstances of his birth, emphasizing that he is at the same time almighty God. That's what the second point of this sermon is about. When this baby was born in Bethlehem, in an ordinary house, on an ordinary street, in a small village in Israel, the most extraordinary thing was that he was the son of God. It was a great miracle, God taking on human flesh. And this is what the believers have been waiting for for thousands of years. This was such an enormous and great event that nothing before or after could ever compare to it. The almighty creator of heaven and earth cared so deeply about his creation that he sent his own son into this sinful world. Into our ordinary lives. That's what he did at the time when he was born. And that's what he's doing right now. Lord Jesus Christ has come into my, your ordinary life as well. Our ordinary lives. Think about what our ordinary lives are like. Our lives are sinful lives. Each morning we get up burdened and worried about all the things that we have to do that day. There are so many things that need our attention and to which we can't do justice. There's often so much that goes wrong in a day or that can go wrong and we know it. A lot of frustrations. We have our petty skirmishes with our families and friends, the workplace and our homes and the church. We have our daily worries about how to make a living, how to make ends meet, how to make that mortgage payment, about our children, how they are growing up. We worry about our health. We worry about death. And in the midst of all this, the Lord Jesus enters into our ordinary lives. 
He did that 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, and he does that now. For even though he is now bodily in heaven, spiritually he is still with us. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He is God Almighty. And you see, that's also the picture that Luke wants us to have. For Luke shows us not only the ordinary way in which he was born, but also the extraordinary way in which he was born. Just pay attention to the way that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was announced. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins his story about his birth as follows. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his town to register. Those are the first three verses that introduce the birth of Christ. The lengthy introduction is all about Augustus. Look introduces us here to a man who is extremely powerful. As emperor, all he has to do is issue a decree and the whole world has to go on the move. He is a mighty ruler. When he speaks, the world has to listen. And please note that at the time of the birth of Christ, the Roman Empire was at the height of its power. There was not a country in the world, there was not a people, a nation in the world that could stop it and stand up to it. Every significant power in the world of that day is subject to the rule of Rome. And August is the supreme ruler. And then further in this story in verse 4, Luke recounts that Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David. Bethlehem is just a small town in the midst of an enormous empire. Bethlehem has no clout whatsoever. And the same thing is true of the house of David. There is no longer a king on the throne of Israel. The house of David has all but disappeared. It is in that town, under those ordinary circumstances, that the Son of God is born, that little baby there in Bethlehem of the insignificant house of David is king of all creation. And brothers and sisters, that is especially what the point that Luke wants, us, wants to make and wants us to understand. That is what is important to know about the birth of the Lord Jesus. And it's also quite clear from the context within which this wonderful story is told. Just look what we are told in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. There, the impending birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is anticipated and prophesied about. Hear what the angel said to Mary when he told her about the birth of her son. He said, as we know from Luke 1, verse 32, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Any reader reading in the context of that announcement will see the great contrast between the emperor, Caesar Augustus, and that baby to be born. 
Caesar Augustus to the world and our mighty emperor in reality is a nobody compared to that baby. Mary herself also knew that. For that is what she, inspired by the Holy Spirit, also said to Elizabeth, her cousin. Mary spoke to Elizabeth in her song about what God has done with respect to the child to be born. She says in Luke 1, verse 51 and 52, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, but he has brought down rulers from their thrones. Brothers and sisters, that almighty God has come into the midst of this world, into our very ordinary lives. He has done and he will do almighty deeds. And the most wonderful deed that God the Father has done, that he has sent his son in the flesh so that our sinful lives can be redeemed. There is no one more powerful than God. He is more powerful than any ruler here on this earth. And it's also something we should remember as the political powers that battle it out for the votes of the nation so that they can be rulers of this or any other country. There is no ruler except the Lord God who rules from above through his son Jesus Christ and who is now seated at the right hand of his father. All authority and all rule is subject to him. For he is the one who ultimately is in control of the events of history. Not even mighty Caesar Augustus can stand up to his rule. Augustus and all the rulers all over this world are but pawns in the hands of the almighty God. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that is the significance of the Christmas story. It's an ordinary story. The story of the birth of a baby born in an ordinary house on an ordinary street and in an ordinary Jewish village. But it is more than anything an extremely extraordinary story. It is a story about God who loves the world so much that he allowed his son to be born in the flesh. That is the story that should be told. And that is the story that must be believed. Amen.